It's one of the tools in jiu-jitsu we use is we work from a bad position. It's like, let a guy get on your back or put put you in a chokehold or something. It's like, okay, I'm already in the bad position. I screwed up, but I'm here. Let me work from this position and try to get out. You are listening to The Real Leaders Podcast, where today impacts tomorrow. We work from a bad position and leaders keep it real. That was the voice of Josh Lannon, the CEO of Warrior's Heart, who shares with you how he went from an owner of a large Vegas nightclub to providing an inpatient center for first responders and veterans. What is addiction? What can you measure beyond the balance sheet? And how do you work out of a bad position? Those questions answered on this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. Enjoy. We are bringing the energy day in five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the CEO of Warrior's Heart, Mr. Josh Lennon. Josh, thanks for being with us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me today. Well, I'm, I'm very excited to have you on. I feel like you're the most unique uh, Real Leaders Impact Awards company we have uh, <laughs> on the list today. Uh, and this is one of my favorites uh, in an addiction treatment center. So if there's one thing I've learned about addiction with my family members, uh, with people we've had on the show, is that there's no cure for it. What is your experience and understanding of addiction and how does this story go? Now, thanks for asking that. And it's funny you said unique because I heard that as uh, a kid going to schools, the teachers say, God, Josh, you're so unique. (laughs) I think I was just a real pain in the butt for him because I would ask tons of questions and I would question and um, needless to say, I didn't fit in to the traditional school system. And that the reason why I say is with addiction, it kind of fed into everything. It's like I didn't feel normal. I didn't feel like I belonged to the whole systems. So when I found alcohol, I was like, oh, I can't fit. I feel better. Mm. It was actually a, a solution. It was a solution until it stopped working. And it worked in my teens all the way in uh, early 20s till I was about 25. And addiction for me uh, took over my life. You know, the drinking, the partying, it was fun. I was living in Las Vegas, running nightclubs. Uh, my wife was a police officer. So the kind of the joke would be I'd get him drunk and she'd book him in jail, you know, the full circle. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it was, it was the lifestyle. And uh, I wish addiction did have a cure, but it didn't. What it does is it has a grip and it gripped me and it held me down and it almost killed me. And it wasn't until my wife one day, because we had done this roller coaster for a number of years, said, Josh, either you go to rehab tonight or I'm going to divorce you. This time was different. She meant it. Like it was the first time she gave me the ultimatum like that, but I could see it in her eyes is the power that she had in her eyes. The woman that I fell in love with is like, okay, this is the real deal. There's no, I'm sorry, honey, it's going to be different. It's like, hey, the gig is up. So I did. I went to rehab and I started my healing process, if you will, of trying to figure out addiction, why it had such a grip on me, how I could overcome it, how I could rebuild my life. And uh, thank goodness I was able to do it with my wife hand in hand because I didn't have the strength to do it alone. I had to give, as, as they say, give your will and your power over. And I did. It's like my way is not working. 
it got me to where I'm at today. It got me to rehab. So please help me. And that was the hardest thing to do is to ask for help. And that started the whole journey, if you will. So this journey. So, uh, okay. I like that. So you went mm-hmm. to a few rehab uh, centers, right? So like, I think like the average per, like rehab centers that one will attend is like eight or nine. I think that's like the average. What did you experience in these rehabilitation centers that you kind of understood and say, I don't really feel like they get me. Uh, yeah. Or what did you experience that you were able to apply to your next, uh, real, re- the, the, the first treatment center that you started? Go is it okay if I uh, cuss it all? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go. Is that appropriate? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> okay. appropriate today. Yeah. So my my first rehab stint, uh, I was a, a kid. I was first. I was put in at um, Charter Hospital at 11 years old for behavioral issues. Again, I hated school. Mm. I didn't like it. So then again, at 13 years old, I was put in Charter Hospital Adolescent CD, and I fucking hated it. I mean, just everything about it. I hated it. The white coats, the kids, they they strap the kids down in beds. I mean, all of it Mm. is like, this doesn't seem right at a small, you know, uh, adolescent. It just, it didn't seem right. Mm. So now fast forward to when I'm 25 years old, I had that image in my head of this is what treatment's going to be like. And thank goodness the uh, industry has evolved. It wasn't like that. So I went to a place in California and, uh, it was different. It was, it was from a holistic standpoint, mind, body, spirit, integrative medicine. You know, they looked at me as a whole person. I was like, wow, okay, I like this. Mm. So I actually then was able to put down my guard and accept some of the information that was coming in because the environment was so inviting. The environment wasn't fighting against me where I was putting up my guard, you know, with the hospitals and the coats and it just, I'm not a hospital guy. Mm. So the start of it was the environment really supported healing. So then I was able to accept some of the information and start working the process. And, um, it stuck with me. It was like, I, I can do this. I can actually get sober and stay sober because I want to do it. So it was my third rehab, if you will, but it was the first time I went where I truly wanted it. It wasn't being forced upon it, but my family, my friends, my wife, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. I think that was one of the biggest differences for me. And so, uh, I really appreciate that uh, as well, because that's what I have been able to understand as well as treating the whole person And these integrated yeah. medicine approaches are very unique. And a lot of people think they're controversial, but for anyone who's been through a treatment center, would agree exactly with what you just said. So would you mind uh, elaborating to our audience members for people struggling with this, for moms who have uh, sons or daughters that are in these facilities who are, you know, uh, reacting the same way that you were right now or when you were a child and you said you fucking hated it. Right. Can you explain to them uh, kind of what you mean by integrated medicine? So looking at it from a holistic point of view. So we learn different ways. Some are auditory, you know, listen to audiobooks. Some are visual, they can read books. Some are kinesthetic, they want to have the experience, they want to get their hands on. So, one method of that, because there's, they call it like eight or nine different intelligence that we have, different uh, ways that we learn, different IQs. So, if we're just talking and that's treatment, is just lectures, you're only reaching a third of the room. You know, just like in school, it's only meant for memorization 
if you can memorize what I say and tell me back, you're smart. It's like, hold on a second. That's not education. That's regurgitation. Mm. You know, I want to get my hands on own experiment. I want to try things. I want to talk to my peers. Well, what are you doing? How are you doing that? So integrative medicine or, or integrative approach to treatment looks at it from the whole point of view is what's the best way that you learn and how do we adapt our philosophy or our modalities, if you will, to, uh, to share it with you the best that you can absorb it in. If not, mm. it's more about me and my information because I have the degrees or whatever versus the student, the, the addict themselves going, okay, how can I serve you? And it's a very different approach. Right. Because uh, I feel like a lot of treatment centers, like the the stereotypical one, at least, I don't know what they're like now, Mm -hmm. but they have this like whole reductionist viewpoint of things where they're going to decide what's good for you right before you walk in the door. Uh, So I think it's just important for our audience to understand, you know, this is a a, a biological disease. You know, it's not like, you know, um, uh, I don't know, any lung disease, any disease that's going on right now that can just be simply treated it's something where that you have uh it's it's part of the brain so there's different ways to treat it for different people and i learned it's bio it's psychosocial there's spiritual there's nutritional different yes. things that work for different people now is this a strategy that's been very effective for your uh inpatient treatment centers and how has this socially conscious uh, strategy um uh, reflected in your growth it is. Yeah. And it's, it's very much integrated into our program, into our philosophies, into how we operate our business. And I'll back up a little bit is that I got into the field in 2002. We built my wife and I, Lisa, we built a company uh, with six locations in multiple states, Arizona and Utah. We had a large private equity company come to us and tell us, hey, we know who you are. We want to purchase your company flattering. We've never done it before. We had about a hundred staff with us. <clears throat> we thought, okay, it's time to let our company um, graduate, if you will, or go to the next level. So we sold our company to all the smart guys, all the MBAs, you know, all the, the smart ones we thought. But what happened was when we sold it, they slowly stripped out the entrepreneurial spirit in the company. They took our core values out. They took our rhythm. They took how we did what we did and the why behind it out. And it became another institution. And I think that's where the word corporation comes from. It's it's corpse. It's dead. There's no spirit to it. And with our, with our company, we saw is that they started running it from the profit and loss statement and not from the human aspect. Mm. So that's a big part of, especially in behavioral healthcare or social capitalism or social consciousness with, with business is that we can't forget about the people aspect of it. Yes. The balance sheet's important, but you and I are what make the balance sheet. It's mm. not balance sheet ran or profit and loss run. We have to put our people, the, uh, the planet, uh, our responsibilities, and then we get profit. It's a result of doing the right thing. I feel like that's like the main discussion that's going on right now is do we have to pay attention to things that we cannot measure on a balance sheet for you, Josh, like what do you measure? Like, what do you mean for our audience? Like in terms of measuring a social or environmental metric? Well, I'll give an example just happened real life, like real. That's what I like about 
you, what you're doing with the podcast, the magazine, it's real, it's raw, right? So we had one of our alumni graduate the program. She'd been out for about four months. She slipped and started drinking again. So we got a call last night, highly intoxicated. She needed to come in and detox. She started to shake. She's like, I just got to get back in the program. Tearful. I was like, but we don't have an authorization to bring her into the program so we could get paid. So the average administrator said, no, you got to hold. We got to go get our uh, insurance authorization. So then we know we can get reimbursement. And okay, I get it. That's what you're supposed to do for a business. But the human thing to do is come on in, mm-hmm. please come in. Let's get you situated. Let's get you stable. We'll figure that out later. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We brought her in. We got huge um, uh, levels of, I guess, appreciation from the family, from the supports. Like, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I could read you a, a text that I got. Uh, and that for me is what resonates. It's like, okay, hey, we may not uh, make some money. We're going to lose some money on this. But you know what? It all works out. It all balances out. So we just do the best that we can with what we have. I, and I would just consider that impact to me. I mean, that's just such a crazy story. And that's what kind of gets left out when you have someone like a, a corporator come in, like they did for your organization. Uh, mm-hmm. To me. Yep. No, you have to follow the policies and procedures. And that's not, you know, it's like, come on, man. Well, There's a human out there. Exactly. Exactly. And I, there was another, we had another guest on the show. He said the same thing about um, his organization that he actually got fired as, as the CEO of his own organization. <laughs> and they wanted to cut 80% of the staff and he didn't let that happen. And because he didn't let that happen, the staff is in the organization's much more um, profitable than it, than it was, you know, 10 years ago from that time. But, uh, and so to me, an impact company is something that someone that's intentionally taking on a problem uh, addiction. Uh, and as it grows, it's, it solves m- more of that problem. Uh, so what are some of the stories and some of the growth that you, that you've seen now with, uh, your new warrior's heart with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or I guess just maybe explain it to our audience before I go on any further, Got it. put words into your mouth. So in 2012, I was doing military style trainings. So that's when I came, I was introduced to a gentleman named Tom Spooner, uh, retired army, um, 30 years, Delta Force. So he retired out tier one level guys. So the top of the top of special operations and uh, teaching these courses and we became friends. And then that's when he told me in the, after the, the course in the debrief, he said, you know, that 22 veterans a day commit suicide. That's real. And it's happening right now in the United States. And it didn't even make sense to me. It's like, how could that even be? Like, why isn't, why aren't more people talking about this? And it's true. It's like, so, okay, now that I'm aware about it, what do we do? Like, how do we make an impact on this? So we formed a partnership, Tom, Lisa, my wife, and myself with the Warrior's Heart. So my wife and I had the background with behavioral health care, Lisa in law enforcement, Tom in the military side. We found that there was very few solutions for our warriors, our protectors that are struggling with addiction and PTSD, uh, depression, moral injury, those sort of things. So it was like, why not build a program just for them? And that's what we did. We built Warriors Heart. <clears throat> it's uh, 
a 60-bed inpatient treatment center right outside San Antonio, Texas. We're on 543 acres. We have detox. We have our inpatient program. We have outpatient. We have long-term sober living. And we're addressing this huge social problem using business as a force for good. And it's working. We've had over now uh, 840 warriors through our course. Wow. Minimums 42 days to go through the program. Josh, could you maybe explain to me, since I haven't heard much about recovery for PTSD, and it's so uh, prevalent amongst uh, our great veterans and, and people who are serving our, our country who deal with traumatic situations, how does their treatment differ from someone in addiction, or is it the same in terms of this holistic, uh, integrative approach? So there's similarities, but it's also different. So the similarities with addiction is if the person just stops drinking and using, that's only part of it. Well, why? Why were they drinking and using in the first place? We look at it at a holistic point of view. We not only address the addiction, but we have to address underlying disorder. Same thing with our military and our first responder population. There's the addiction, but the addiction a lot of times is the self-medicating because of the underlying trauma of what's happened. The, the difference, I think, between my experience as a civilian and a military is that a civilian a lot of times is the victim of, uh, say, a traumatic event. The military, they volunteered. They're the ones getting the calls. They're the ones going. And they're the ones like pulling the children out of the car. They're, the one, they're not a victim of it. They're experiencing it. So there's a very different approach between a victim of PTSD and ones that were participating in mass casualties or different types of events when they lost their brothers and sisters. It's a different approach that, that we utilize. So do you work with, I don't know, like a police station or first responders or, or different services say, hey, like if your people need help, like we're going to be here. Like how do, how do they get to you and find out about you? Well, absolutely. Uh, one, we take TRICARE. So we take the government insurance and we're also contracted with a number of VAs. So the VAs are directly referring to us as well because the VAs are backlogged and they know that through what's called the Mission Act or the Choice Program, that they will now pay for private facilities like Warriors Heart. Mm. So they refer uh, warriors directly to us, okay. which is in incredible. And they cover the cost of treatment. And you mentioned something earlier in your uh, second to last response. You said uh, it's something about drinking and stopping drinking and that being a difficult thing. Like I've heard like that's like not the end. That's just the beginning of recovery. It's like the most difficult thing to do is to stop. And then you have all those withdrawal pains and everything that comes along with that and be able to sustain that throughout your life in the continuum of care, like how do you define that? How do you look that, look at that? And then how do you help these people after they leave? So it is, it's just the beginning. You take away the drugs and alcohol out of my life. I'm still me, but the difference is now I hurt. I can actually feel all the pain. I can feel everything that I was, the reasons why I was medicating. So it is the beginning that we have to start to rebuild and uh, uh, we, we use different modalities, but we have to start um, rebuilding our lives. And we do what we call a mission file, the mission of my life. So with our population, they're very familiar with 
basic trainings or academies or advanced training courses. So we've built Warrior's Heart around that uh, modality without the in-your-face yelling, but it's like a training course. And that's what we're doing is we're training them to survive and thrive in life. Mm. So we start rebuilding them with the training model aspect. And it's something that these guys get, they relate to, and we build upon it. How'd that come about? Are you talking with Tom about this and say, hey, what's an innovative way that will actually relate to what these people have experienced? Like, how, how do you come up with something like that? Absolutely. Past experience from Tom, from Lisa, from from other uh, not only operators, but military guys, police. And we ask questions. Uh, Every single one of our clients that go through our program, we do an exit briefing. What did you like? What did you not like? How can we improve? We want that information back and we make the adjustments as we start to see trends of it. But we took past experience. And that's what I love about, again, real leaders, real world is like, I'm not going to take advice from someone that's never done it themselves. I may listen to you, but unless you've done that, uh, you know, like I couldn't be um, drunk and own treatment centers. I just want to be right. You know, I'm telling you to stay sober and I'm not, you know, it's bullshit. Yeah. So yeah, past experiences. I think it was something that I heard in another interview and it was like 60% of people like relapse after they come out of a recovery center. So, and now again, for people listening to this too, like there's not just in recovery, there's outpatient outpatient as well that you can do and you can be involved with, or whether it's in a club, whether it's just you're interacting with friends. Do you have anything set up for these people, for these veterans, these uh, first responders after they leave? Yes, because we know that environment is stronger than will. So what I mean by that is I can be in the Antarctic, but if I don't have the right tools on the right uh, gear to stay warm, I'm going to die. No matter how much I use positive thought, I am warm, I'm warm, I'm warm. The environment's going to crush me because I just don't have the tools. Mm. So what we do is in the training course is we give them the tools to survive in that environment. So when they leave our program, they have the tools, but then what they also can come back and to base camp and do safety check-ins, alumni meetings, phone calls, uh, groups. Hey, where are you at? What's working? What's not working? And that's where they have those step-down programs from inpatient, outpatient, sober living houses, alumni retreats. You know, there is a step process back to it. You just don't throw them right out in the wild right right away and josh i, I saw you've uh, been getting involved in a little jiu-jitsu lately what's yes, uh, what's what's that been able to teach you about you know just leadership and staying focused and just you know dealing with a, a harsh environment well thanks for saying that because we do we uh incorporate jiu-jitsu into our program and uh it's been phenomenal we're sponsored by storm kimonos they're an incredible company provided the geese, the, uh, the, the mats. And in our program, we introduced jujitsu to the guys and what it is, it's not about force. It's not about raw, you know, how a lot of times wars we succeed if we're aggressive, right? But a lot of times it's not like that. How often in my life have I done that and I actually burned relationships, burned jobs, burned, just destroyed stuff. It's like, it's not about that. What about leveraging and breathing and, okay, I'm in a crappy situation, but I can get out of this. What are my ways out? Oh, I can move an inch here. I can put my arm here. So we teach them subtle ways to um, 
survive under pressure. And we use jujitsu as, as a tool to do that. And, and we see guys too, after they complete our program, now that they've been introduced to jujitsu, they're joining academies and they're continuing on with their training because it's another therapeutic tool kinesthetic we're physical we're supposed to sweat we're supposed to move some of our guys a lot of our guys they find that hey like with jujitsu or crossfit it's another tool that they use for their recovery which may sound counterintuitive to our audience but it's got to be i tried jujitsu for a couple months you know i'm just one of those guys obviously Mm -hmm. just couldn't stick with it but it was the most like humbling Oh, three yes. months of my life was just like because you know I played a lot of physical sports and you're totally right about that the aggressiveness and you have to use that power against them which I found mm-hmm. was so interesting um, but I really it's like the, yeah it's on. the guys that spaz out on the ground and stuff it's like man you're missing it it's yeah. like how often do you do that in life it's like yeah I know I know <laughs> so it's a great tool it really is and kudos for trying it it takes a lot of guts what about like how has that helped with maybe leadership and decision making or just dealing with people in general I mean, sometimes it's like for me, it's like you have one of those coworkers who you just don't agree with, but you know, like if you say something or you're too irrational, it's going to put you in a, in a bad place. How do you, have you been able to use jujitsu or something like that as a tool to deal with people? It's one of the tools in jujitsu we use is we've worked from a bad position. It's like, let a guy get on your back or put it, put you in chokehold or something. It's like, okay, I'm already in the bad position. I screwed up, but I'm here. Let me work from this position and try to get out. So where jujitsu applies in life and business is like, Hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm in this bad position. I'm talking to this employee or made some bad decisions financially. I'm here. It is what it is. How do I get out of it now? Mm. Relax, breathe. Okay. Let me think because there's always a way to solve the problem. It's when I spaz out or try to force it or attack other people or blame other people. It doesn't work. It really doesn't. It just burns relationships. I take accountability for me and I start trying to figure a way out. Josh, uh, your life has seemed to present you with a lot of difficult situations that you've been able to overcome. What's the most difficult decision you've had to make, would you say? Difficult decision I've had to make. Um, That's a tough one. Right now, my daughter's about ready to go to college. There you go. You know, I'm, I'm having, you know, cause I love my daughter and it's like in just a couple months, she's going to be gone. Yeah. And it's not a tough do? decision, but, but it is, but it's not like I'm going to say, don't go, but just to how fast things happen in life, like life moves pretty quick. So a tough, I don't know. It's a, it's a tough question. I really don't know how to answer it because life is always full of tough choices. And this one with my daughter that she's leaving is really weighing heavy on my heart, but I'm excited for her. And I'm like, ah, being a dad. Yeah. So all of it, I don't know if that even makes sense. Well, no, it's real because I mean, it's, it's a thing. Like it is a thing. Like my parents are completely different people after I came back from college and it's difficult to do being empty nesters now. And uh, that's something that people need to hear as well. That's real. Uh, but what, okay, what fascinated me is actually, I, I didn't realize what the impact was on that corporation that took over your first couple of, um, uh, you yeah. know, behavior therapy, uh, addiction <clears throat> treatment centers. That's horribly put, but, uh, what have you learned from that now 
that you can apply to Warrior's heart? And has have any private equity firms approached you about this? Now, and that, yeah, solid question. So a lot of it has to do with self-confidence. I'm, I did horrible in school. I loved to study, but I didn't like what they were teaching me in school. Mm. So I left school thinking I was stupid. When this private equity came, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars. They're ran by these attorneys and accountants and MBAs, and they have all these degrees. And I thought, well, they must know how to run my company better than me. They could now take my company to the next level. And I thought I was doing the right thing for all of my staff, 100 mm. staff. And it was, that was a tough decision for sure. Um, but I also felt it was the right thing to do at that time. So when we sold, what I learned over a course of five years before they bankrupted the company, all of it, bankrupted, 100 people gone, mm. Whew, hurts my heart, you know, is that, um, man, it, just because someone has a degree or been able to raise some money doesn't mean that they're smart. Mm. You know, I think learning comes from trial and error. It doesn't come from degrees and certificates on the wall. Yeah, Josh, that's what I find so fascinating about these, these impact companies and the era that we are in right now. It's uh, what was it described to me as an interregnum from an organization, uh, a, a society that has deemed, you know, slavery as a bad uh, way of to do business, which was used to be thought of as a good way. It's just going to piss off a lot of people, but that's how they used mm-hmm. to think about it. Um, to now child labor, to that used to be a great business model. Now it's not; it's frowned upon. To now, it's we're starting to think about the output of capitalism and how it's impacting our environment, uh, climate change. What's it contributing to social inequities? I don't know, but through free markets though, I'm not talking about social. I'm talking about through free markets. So what's like your stance on how business should be operated as in, in terms of what we could potentially be measuring beyond just the balance sheet? Well, my business is behavioral health care. And the population I'm serving, there are our veterans, our first responders, our firefighters, our EMS. To me, those are some of the most amazing human beings in this world because they're the ones that volunteer and say, hey, I'm here for you. Like if I call 911 because someone's drowning in the pool, they're going to come. They're going to show up. It doesn't matter who I am, where I'm from. They're going to show up and serve. To me, that class that warrior clash should be taken care of. They should be paid more. They should have their health care taken care of. I mean, it, they really should be those that serve should be, we should give the, as a community, give back to them. Mm. I, I'm not going to go on a soapbox, but it's like, why do we pay our jesters of the court? Why do we pay our sports stars so much money and we pay our teachers and our protectors so little? I don't understand it. Mm. So I think there really is a, an injustice when it comes to that. Um, and I think at a certain point, we may evolve to where we do appreciate those that take care of us. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you've been able to bring in jiu-jitsu. You've been able to bring in different courses, these training courses that uh, they, can, they can recognize and, and be a part of. Uh, you've taught them a lot of things. What have they taught you? Uh, well, I was a stand-up fighter most of my life. So kickboxing, American Kempo, studied with Paul Mills, Grandmaster Paul Mills. Loved it. When I started doing jiu-jitsu, it was a different world. So what it taught me was what I thought I knew, I may not know. Being that I was 
I was proficient on my feet, but once I went to the ground, it was a completely different game. Mm. So there's all of these different levels of learning. It's like, hey, if I think I'm good in my field, just take it from a different plane. I may know nothing at all. So we're always in a constant state of evolving, of growing, of studying. Like we'll never reach a peak because there's always more learning to discover. And that's what it's taught me. It's like always be a student, always be hungry, always be asking questions and learning. What about the vets, though? What about the the first responders? What about Tom Spooner? What has he taught you? Incredible leadership. I mean, here's a man that uh, is 10 years as a team leader in Delta top tier, you know, I personally think there, so you have seal team six and you have Delta. Mm-hmm. My personal opinion is Delta's step above team six, that's, that's but the green still, berets, all, right? all of them are incredible human yeah. beings. I, I can't even come close to those guys to lead teams under those types of situations is incredible. He is the most humble and best partner. I humble person I've ever known for what he's accomplished but he's one of the best partners and leaders um, that I've ever had. Um, So what I've learned from him is here's a guy that could be a rock star in the military, but such a normal human being to you and I, because he cares. He truly does care about uh, his brothers and sisters. And that's what helps him continue on his mission. Because if you think about it in the military, he was a protector. Mm. He's doing the same thing now out of the military. And I think that, I mean, the, the Green Berets, don't they call themselves like, I'm going to botch this, but don't they call themselves like the quiet leaders or something like that? Like the unspoken? The sil- silent professionals. The silent professionals, right? So yeah, that, that humble mentality, I think that's really great. You know, all these are, are traits of leadership, Josh. Like to you, let's bring this full circle now. Like what is your definition of a real leader? Hmm. Well, we touched upon it a little bit earlier and and I'll reiterate is that you have to be real. So you get a lot of people that think they're leaders because of the position or title that they're in, but they're full of shit. And a lot of people know that, but they're not willing to call them out on it. You know, like I would never go to a personal trainer that's overweight or I'm not going to go to, you know, talk to my friend about uh, marriage counseling. That's my marriage. If he's been divorced three times, bro. Okay. I got to know who I'm, who the real successful person is because they're doing it. So my definition of a real leader is someone who is doing it for real. Like again, I would have, I would sell the business if I was drinking and partying because I would be not in integrity for what I'm asking our warriors to do is to live a sober life. My partner, Tom, same deal. You know, we live what we ask our, our clients, our warriors to do. That's alignment. That's integrity to me. So a real leader is someone who has integrity that they actually do what they, they share or what they ask other people to do. Josh, appreciate your time coming on the Real Leaders Podcast today. Just want to summarize this a little bit from what we spoke about today. We talked about the personal journey, talked about addiction, how to treat someone not just with a a rundown approach, but a holistic approach Uh, because people are different. They need different treatments for different things. Talked about the ways like you're doing it and what you learned from the prior organization that was taken over by, you know, these, these assholes with MBAs who thought they were running better than you. Uh, (laughs) And then, and then what jujitsu's taught you, what Tom Spooner's taught you, and then wrapping it up, 
with your leadership advice. So I uh, just want to appreciate your time coming back on the show, Josh. For Josh Lane, I'm Kevin Edwards. I ask you to go out there, do it for real with integrity, folks, and always keep it real. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. All right, everyone. I just want to personally thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. We've been putting in a lot of hours to get these CEOs on the show and for them to open up like this uh, on the podcast uh, just means the world not only to me, but uh, hopefully to everyone who is in need of some encouragement uh, and just needs some some energy, uh, some, some hope that there's some good people out there in these influential positions who are just keeping it real. So uh, if you want to support this podcast, uh, please share it with a friend, hit the subscribe button or leave a review. One of the three, share it with a friend, hit the subscribe button or leave a review. It'd mean the world to us to keep this podcast going and to keep it real. Thanks everyone.